Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic calling Rebecca Tossig. Rebecca is a disability advocate with a PhD in disability studies and creator of the Instagram account Sitting Pretty. Her book, Sitting Pretty, is a memoir and essays chronicling a lifetime of experiences in a paralyzed body, navigating a world that not only physically puts bodies like hers at a disadvantage, but socially as well. Tossig's accounts range from the challenging to the ordinary to the wonderful, capturing a more full depiction of living with disability than is typically portrayed in media. We spoke with Rebecca about the book and some of the topics she dives into within its pages. All right, so joining us on our podcast right now, we have Rebecca Tossig, and she is the author of Sitting Pretty. And Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. We are so happy to have you here. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong on this, but the seed for this book started on Instagram um, for you, correct? Yes, yes, it did. Yeah. So then when when did the shape of this actual book, when did that start to form for you? When did it come, go from an Instagram account to, oh, this is a book that I can put out there? Yeah, well, I had been on Instagram. Gosh, okay, I've done the math on this before. What was it? I think I was on Instagram for three or four years, just writing these um, little snippets of life from from my perspective in this um, visibly physically disabled body. Um, I came to call those little mini memoirs. And I think I'd been writing those for about three or four years um, when I connected with the wonderful literary agent, Morley Mattingly. Um, she just kind of saw what I was writing online and, and, and wanted to know if I had envisioned a book, um, which I had, I'd very much been thinking about a book. And so, um, with her prompting, we just kind of put together this pitch and um, for a book. And I kind of mined through all the writing that I had been doing over the last few years and, and saw like what um, themes are really coming out. What are things that I tend to be writing about and that um, that people seem to be resonating with? So themes like um, romance and, and love and relationships or um, like what is the real lived felt experience of accessibility and inaccessibility? Um, or the impact of representation or a lack of representation, things like that. Um, so we kind of gathered those themes together and um, sent out some um, a book proposal for what that could look like if we fleshed it out. And, and it felt like the right time for it in a lot of ways because um, if anyone is wondering, Instagram gives you 2,200 characters in your captions. <laughs> I was bumping up against that so hard the longer I wrote. And so it felt like, okay, this is time deeper stories, more stories, um, kind of reach sprawling out, right? Like unfurling a little bit um, to go deeper in a book. So um, yeah, that's a little bit about the progression, I guess. And I love that you um, you mentioned that you're, you have a body that is visually, um, dis you know, you can see that it's disabled because one of the things um, in the book that I love is that you really challenge um, what disability is, what it can look like, and you sort of break it out of this binary of disabled people versus non-disabled people. Um, and how, you know, we all have different levels of ableness that can vary through different environments throughout our lives. And, you know, we all may need accommodations of some kind. Um, and I think that nuance is very important. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, thank you. Well, I feel like it's something that's only felt true or the, the longer that the book has been out in the world um, mm -hmm. and, and interacting with more readers who are connecting with this book from very different um, experiences, but um, finding kind of that core connection to um, sort of being, uh, I think, a term that I have some affection for is like a misfit, right? Like there's this built world that we've created for this like quote unquote average, um, which really means like idealized, imagined body and mind. And so many of us find ourselves misaligned with that or not fitting with that. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, it has been interesting to see all of the different expressions of disability and the ways that that changes and shifts over time. And even like my own body has changed since I wrote the book. Like I um if you read the epilogue i don't think this is a great spoiler but i find out that i'm i found out that i was pregnant like less than 24 hours after i submitted the final manuscript for this book and so my body changed with pregnancy and then delivering a baby and this um uh my partner was diagnosed with cancer during that time and so his body was changing and um i just feel very close to the ways that our bodies are always are continually fluctuating and moving in and out of these um, uh, positions of access and inaccessibility and disability and ability. And um, it's, it's, it isn't a binary. And I don't even think it's really a continuum like somewhere on a sliding scale. It seems much more to be a web of continuums that are con consistently or continually shifting over time and over space, depending on context. Um, yes, it's, it's, um, there is a, a world of nuance there, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Because, you know, there are so many different, right. It's not, it's not a continuum. It's not just one specific ability. Like, you know, there's physical movement, there's sight, there's hearing, you know, there are all these different nuances there. Um, and there was one thing, one thought I actually, it was funny. I actually had this thought earlier on in the book and then you addressed it directly. Um, as you were talking about accommodations that can wind up benefiting people, um, I thought about closed captioning, which is, you know, something that is designed for, you know, viewers who have trouble hearing, um, but it's something that I and many other people have found that we just like to have because, you know, so like that, there's an example of something that's made our lives easier, but isn't necessarily an accommodation for us. Um, so I guess what, what does that say in terms of making a more inclusive world? If that makes sense, I'm yeah. not sure if there's a question there, but no, 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 I'm here for it. I, I, I yes, I, I love talking about that kind of thing with design because I think there has been for um, we have a lot of momentum behind the idea that um, we should design for average. We should design for like the common denominator, right? Like mm -hmm. let's picture the the paper doll version of a human and then build the world around that thing. And I think what has become clear and clear over time is that when we do that, we actually um, create tools or spaces that work for very few of us um, mm -hmm. because um, very few of us actually fit into that. Very few of us actually fit into that average category. So when we actually shift our perspective to um, people on the margins, to people that we would consider more exceptional um, or exceptions, um, then we start to create spaces and tools that actually accommodate all of us better. And I think that there's something that has been counterintuitive about that for us um, in the world of design for a long time. But I think that we're starting to recognize that there's a shift. You know, universal design is this idea that um, when we create, when we look at all of the exceptions or the people on the margins, then we really create a space um, that holds all of us so much better. And closed captioning is a great example 
Um, but there's just like a huge list of tools um, that were originally created for folks with some kind of disability that we like audiobooks is another one, right? Mm. Like audiobooks initially um, were created for, for people um, with any kind of vision impairment. And there was actually like a lot of resistance from what I understand at the front end to actually record audiobooks because people didn't see it as a very lucrative investment. Um, and now, I mean, like what foolish- Now people love them. Right, I mean, I think we actually, there could be an argument that people are listening to audiobooks more than they are like flipping through the actual pages of a book sometimes, you know? Like it's it's um, becoming like the way we consume uh, writing in a lot of ways, regardless of whatever is happening with our vision. Um, there, I mean, we could, I could go on. I, I, I love talking about this kind of thing, but yeah, I think that the, that that's a really important shift that I think we're starting to realize and catch on too, is that when we design with the most flexibility in mind, when we look to the people on the edges, then we actually create designs that work better for all of us. So if you want to keep talking about this, um, I have a more sort of specific question that continues along this train of thought. Um, so you talk, at, I believe it's the end of chapter five, about um, work environments and how, you know, special accommodations are made sometimes, but you talk about that versus what a new and more flexible model of working could look like. Um, so what what would that look like for you? What would it need to include um, generally, if not specifically? In terms of like what a flexible work environment would look like? Yeah, yeah, just something that, you know, um, uh, I guess more, more overhauling what we think of as work as opposed to, oh, we're just gonna bring in these accommodations to, you know, yeah. help these few people that we think have this issue and sort of leaving it at that. Yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, it is a big question. And I think that in a lot of ways, um, it depends on the workspace, right? It depends on the right. of, of um, the team and what the job is at hand. I think um, I've had a lot of opportunities to talk with um, in workplaces since the book came out and, and about like the ways that um, people are hired and, and what happens through that process of bringing people onto a team. and. I, you know, one thing that has has felt um, more and more appealing to me is the idea of um, bringing in a new team member, bringing in a new person into your place of work with the question of, um, with specific questions about like, what are your needs and what are your assets, right? As opposed to um, having like um, a list of what your assets should be and assuming that there's no needs until they come up right like coming like starting in the space from that mm. way um and i think that i think that if that was more of the um approach that we took with workplaces we could really take stock of all of the different needs that we have on a team i mean i think that um, that can look like a lot of different things for folks with disabilities but it also looks like a lot of different things for people with um children right or people mm -hmm. who are pregnant or people um, who are balancing childcare or have sick parents, or um, I think it could look like um, a lot of different things for people who don't necessarily identify as having a disability, but maybe deal with chronic pain or migraines or um, have specific dietary restrictions, right? I think um, I think that for a long time, the idea of having any sort of specific need in a workplace has been considered um, like a, a, a huge drawback or um, something you would wanna hide. 
right? Mm-hmm. Not something that you want to advertise or go in off the cuff with. Um, right, right. They don't mm-hmm. find out until like at least a year in or whatever, right? Like, yeah, yeah. you want to look I, again, like yes. like we said before, this idealized version yes, of yes. a worker. Yes, you're the worker. You've got um, everything. You have no needs and you have everything we would like in a worker, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and um, I think that that's just something very unsustainable about that. So, and I, anytime I'm like talking about conversations about workplaces, I I want to acknowledge that 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 is a complicated system and it is different for each environment. Um, and that a lot of times the people like maybe listening to this conversation aren't necessarily in the position to be like, to change the workplace in that way, right? Like right. we're not all at the top with, with clipboards saying like, oh yeah, let's just overhaul, right? Let's just do <laughs> now. Um, but I think even in little pockets of work environments, um, I have found it to be really powerful to work on small teams of people who recognize this this idea that we all have needs and we all have assets and let's collaborate together to sort out the puzzle of, of who we are as a team. Um, uh, it, it, I didn't, I, it's not in the book, but I write a lot about teaching in the book, but um, one thing that's not in the book is just the team of teachers that I worked with at that school, the high school that I write about in the book. And, um, and I think that working with that team of teachers just in the English department was my first experience of, of getting to see what it's like to work with people who are transparent about their needs and open about their assets and non-competitive about their assets and um, and how that can work together and what it looks like to support each other in the workplace in that way. Um, so that might be a more manageable thing to think of initially, right? From um, or what, we, what some of us may have control over or not is, um, wanting i want us to create workspaces but also classroom spaces and and home spaces and friendships and just spaces yeah, spaces yeah. <laughs> the people where um we're having a need is not um considered some enormous uh, tragedy or drawback but just a part of being a human being mm-hmm. One of the things that I um really loved about reading the book and also that I'm loving about talking with you right now is that um you are an academic, you have a PhD um, in disability studies, but you're also someone who has the gift to be able to take, um, you know, complex ideas and thoughts and make them not only accessible, we're talking about accessibility, um, but you make them incredibly engaging. Um, and, you know, reading the book, it's, you know, you fly right through it. Um, talking to you is, feels breezy. It's a pleasure. Um, is, is that balance something that you've had to work on over the years? Is that something that just comes naturally to you? Uh, that's a good question. How I mean, do you do it? <laughs> <laughs> I think, um, gosh, I could, we could really dig into this. Um, when I started out in graduate school, I didn't know about disability studies. And so I was, um, I was like, I was actually studying 19th century British and American literature um, mm. and, uh, and full in, into that world. And, um, from in my experience, and this is this is only my, I mean, this is just my experience. But for me, um, I was starting to feel um, really, really drained um, by the work of being an academic, being a grad student, um, and kind of pouring my body and soul um, into this work, getting paid like nothing to do it, um, and and kind of this question mark of like who is this really for? Like who, if I'm like pouring myself into writing these papers and, and pouring over these texts and having these conversations at seminar tables, like 
who, who is that for? And when I found disability studies, and I talk about this a little bit in the book too, it, it really was this like earth shifting, like the physics of the universe were morphing around me kind of moment that hit me so personally, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I was like rethinking my entire life of disability and had words and language that were coming alive and making sense of things and casting light on new things. And um, so it hit me in this really personal way. And um, and I, I, as I kind of stepped into that space um, and started writing personally about it, I had this really strong feeling that I did not want those ideas to be locked up in academia. Um, not that I, I want them to exist there and continue to flourish there, mm-hmm. but I wanted to like open all the doors and windows and let that fly out because I, I knew um, who those ideas would matter for and who I wanted to connect with them and, um, and why they were important. I like felt that in my body. And so um, I think that that has been an important thing to me moving like from that moment on um, was finding ways to um, kind of strip away any, um, I don't want to say extra, anything extra, but kind of get to the core of what these ideas were. And I felt that, you know, like it wasn't hard to do. I felt that in my body. And um, and I I think just having like a really clear idea of why these are important and ideas are important, who are there for, you know, like even my 14 year old niece, like I want my 14 year old niece to be able to understand these things. Um, I think that that is a big piece of it. Um, just feeling the the urgency for um, connection around this conversation. Um, so I, I don't I don't know if that answers your question. Um, no, yeah, but, yeah. I think I think that's a really um, helpful way to think about. It. And I think you know what you're doing is really important. Um, you know, when I said that you made these ideas accessible, I just kind of used that word, not really thinking about. But the more you're talking, the more I'm thinking about it. It's like it is kind of an accessibility thing in a way. And you, you know, have that ability to, you know, access these deep thoughts and make them accessible to people in a way that, you know, the average person who doesn't have a PhD might not have in the same way, if that rambling makes sense. So that's my, I mean, like what you're saying is my absolute hope for the book. Like that's exactly, I have had the word accessibility in my mind because that's, that's how I want it to be. And I want it to be felt is accessible. Um, so I'm really, really glad to hear you use those words. Good, good. Um, I feel like I passed a test. Flying <laughs> <laughs> colors, look at you go. Yes. <laughs> um, one chapter I did want to talk about, because this chapter I think was the most impactful for me. This was the chapter where I feel like I learned a lot. Um, and it's called The Complications of Kindness. And it's where you talk about misguided attempts by non-disabled people to perform what they see as acts of kindness for disabled people. Um, and there's so much to unpack. And I would love to just sit here with you for hours and talk about every single idea you bring up. Um, but one, we don't want this to be hours long. And two, I want to let people read it for themselves. Um, but so I'll ask you more generally, what do you think on this topic is the most important thing for non-disabled people to realize that they are probably not aware of? Oh gosh, the most, the superlative question. <laughs> um, 
I mean, I was, I knew that it was going to be the chapter you said, because that's the chapter that most people are like, all right, we've got to get to this one mm. um, because it's, it's, it, um, it's wrinkly. It like, it's, it, it's troubling to a lot of people. And it complicates that, our ideas of, you know, how we see uh, the world. I'm not sure if I can pick out the, like the most important thing. I mean, I, I guess I would say, where should we start? I, um, you, I'll let you do a few if you want. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, think that, I think that one thing that comes up for a lot of people reading this book um, is anxiety about what to do, right? Like it feels like one of the most common lessons that we have been taught that is like embedded deeply in our culture is that you be kind to disabled people, right? Like you be kind um, and, or, or like we figure out who the good guy or bad guy is in the storyline by based on like, are they, but are they kind to the, the vulnerable disabled people or um, are they taking advantage of them? Like that's how we sort people out. And, mm -hmm. um, and there's a huge um, kind of momentum behind that um, in our storytelling specifically, like starting all the way back with Charles Dickens and Tiny Tim and this character that like um, actually like magically transforms the, the crabbiest man on earth to be this, you know, benefactor of warmth and generosity through his vulnerability as a disabled character. So um, I guess one of the things I would say is that um, I don't know that the point of that chapter Actually, I would say the point of that chapter is not to tell you exactly what to do in any given situation. And I think people often um, are hoping for that, right? Mm -hmm. Like um, in the end, they're like, okay, but so how, how do I interact with a disabled person on the street when I see that they're like struggling to pick something off of the ground? What do I do? Um, mm -hmm. and, I, and I wish that, I mean, like, I wish that the world was that simple and that I could just kind of give like a three point bullet point list of like, first you say this and then you do that. Um, but I, I think really what I wanted to point out in that chapter or illuminate in that chapter is, is um, the roles that we've designated for people in our society, right? Like so much, I feel like so much of what we do, especially out in public with people we don't know is, is performances, right? Like we're mm -hmm. performing the role of a kind person and we're performing the role, um, I'm a good person. And I think that um, with that kind of cultural momentum, what a lot of people probably don't understand is, is um, what it feels like to be pushed into that role as the disabled character who must always be receiving all of these um, um, attempts at kindness. Um, and, and so I guess one thing I, I would say that feels important, okay, the first thing is, um, it's not necessarily going to give you the answers of how to behave or what to say or what to do. I'm, I'm never very um, interested in pinning that down, which you will realize is like three pages into the book. Um, <laughs> but, um, but two, I think um, a lot of people, I guess to go along with that, if, if you're looking for answers, I guess what I would, of how to behave if you're not disabled, um, how to behave or treat people who are disabled. I think part of what I want to do in that chapter is just bring people into an experience that they may not be familiar with um, and maybe wouldn't assume um, is the case. Um, that momentum of always playing the same character against your will in this story that we're enacting out together, um, I think it can be hard for people to picture or imagine um, I've definitely had people respond to me uh, several, like 
all kinds of versions of this responded to that chapter by saying like, I would love it if people opened the doors for me wherever I went, or I would love it if people offered to carry my groceries, like getting treated like a princess or something like that, right? And I guess um, what I would hope is that um, people would be able to um, kind of believe a, a, a perspective that they might not have experienced themselves and like trust that, that perspective. Um, but oh gosh, I mean, we really could talk about this chapter in the afternoon because I think um, another thing I would like to point out about that chapter, um, and it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of all of the different expressions uh, and experience of disability that we have in the world is that my experience with the form of kindness that I talk about in that chapter um, is positioned from the perspective of someone who is um, visibly physically disabled. Mm -hmm. And I've talked with a lot of people um, about that chapter who come at that experience with an invisible disability. And I think that actually it's interesting that our in, in a lot of ways, experiences around kindness or helpfulness are almost an opposing forces for people with physical and, and or visible and invisible disabilities. So if I am constantly telling the world, like, I promise I'm fine. I promise I have this. Um, I've got it. A lot of people with invisible disabilities are coming at the world saying, I promise I need this assistance. Believe me when I say I need this help. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think what's interesting about that is that it, it, um, it really gets at this deeper idea of, um, the assumptions that we make based on what we see in a split moment, mm -hmm. right? Um, you are standing upright and I don't see a cane, so you must be fine. You mm -hmm. are sitting in this chair. You must need a little bit of help from me. And I think- We have these shortcuts in our brain yes, that kind of take yes, us to yes. how we should act. Yes, and I think, um, and I understand how that happens. because I have also a human brain and I, I know how that happens. And I, um, I have plenty of examples of, of doing that myself, but I think deeper, then um, all of that, I guess what I, I'm really hoping that the chapter instills in us is a moment of pause, a rhythm of pause or a habit of pause um, mm -hmm. that as we're moving through the world that we just take like a beat to let people show us who they are, what they need, and that we would believe those people, you know, um, regardless of what our um, instincts or our, our um, assumptions might be telling us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's I think that's very important. Um, so as much as I could continue talking with you all day about all of this, um, we do have to wrap up, but I have one more question for you. Um, and I'm sorry to say this is another superlative question. Um, and we ask this of all the guests on our podcast. Um, since this is primarily for teachers and their students, who was your favorite teacher? I just got goosebumps. Who was my favorite <laughs> teacher? Oh no, this is a superlative question. How, okay. All right. I'm going all the way from fourth grade to sophomore year in high school to graduate school in one leap. Um, I think, okay, if, in the context of this book, um, I think my favorite teacher um, would be, I'm gonna go, given knowing that there are like, 40 other people I could name. Mm -hmm. uh, this, uh, I would say the professor, a professor that I had at KU, um, Laura Moriarty, um, was the, the class I took um, where the, I had the first experience writing um, 
creative nonfiction or personal writing. And I was in the middle of 19th century transatlantic literature and not supposed to be taking this class, but I did. And I just took it um, for the reason of basically the pursuit of joy. And um, it didn't it didn't count as like one of my academic classes, but um, or it wasn't on track. Um, but I had so much joy in her class writing um, personal writing. Um, and she looked at me um, in one of our like one-on-one -on -one meetings and just said like you've got to pay attention to the sparkles in your eyes that your eyes are dancing as you are talking about this and as you're working on this um and i don't think without that permission from her or that note from her um that i really would have been brave enough to um pivot in such a big way and move in such a different direction um and her her unwavering belief in in me has is just tangible um i mean it, it's had tangible effects in the course of my life and what an amazing thing that a teacher can do to meet someone in that moment and and literally change the direction or the path um that they're headed on so by paying attention to noting the sparkles in the student's eyes so uh that's that's what i'm gonna say uh, laura moriarty she's an amazing writer and an amazing teacher I love I love that paying attention to the the sparkles in your eyes. I think yeah. that's great. Yeah. Well. Powerful for me. Good. Good. Uh, well, Rebecca, thank you so much. This has been um, a very enjoyable chat to have. We're so happy we had you. Thank you so much for having me. I've had a blast as well. Good. 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 Okay. Well, you take care. I hope you, you too. Have. Yes. Um, enjoy your holiday season. Yes. 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 <laughs> All right. Thanks again. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.